Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. On this episode, we're thrilled to be joined by author and renowned film historian, Jeremy Arnold. Mr. Arnold's latest book has just been released, The Essentials, Volume 2, 52 More Must-See Movies and Why They Matter. This gorgeous volume is the sequel to his first collection of titles, released in 2016, and it's an extension of the popular Essential series on Turner Classic Movies. The book is filled with insightful and probing commentary and complemented by a wealth of rarely seen production photos from the likes of Psycho, Rashomon, and Brief Encounter. One thing that came to mind when I was reading through the book is, you know, these chapters you're covering 52 uh, essential movies here, and you provide in just a few short pages for each movie the, the, a summary of the film, some behind-the-scenes anecdotes, and, and you place it in kind of an analytical context. That must have been a pretty tall order to, to be that s- succinct with each of these titles. Oh, absolutely. I chose all the photos and worked pretty closely with um, our photo editor, Mark Vieira, who you, you may know. He's just brilliant uh, with classic Hollywood images. And the uh, designers at, at Running Press, um, you know, the idea was for this book to, you know, look like a beautiful object to look through in addition to the writing that, that's in it. Uh, so I'm really happy with that. And it's a luxury when you do a book on classic Hollywood to be able to have so many beautiful photos um, at your disposal. Um, it's really, it can be really challenging to get used to photos and be able to use so many of them. But when you're working with Turner Classic Movies, it kind of cuts through a lot of red tape. Um, and as for the the actual essays, you're right. That is, it's so challenging, especially for some of these movies, but really for all of them to make it read in the way you just described. You know, the, the thing that I really didn't want this book to be, or the previous Essentials book, was something uh, superficial or all fluffy. Um, you know, I, I, want, I really wanted some analysis and also to give a sense to people who may not really be as obsessed with classic movies or think about them that much, but give them a sense of how movies work and how the craft of storytelling and the choices that filmmakers make, editing, lighting, uh, structure, all, all kinds of things, costume design, how these things create the effects in the audience that make us love and treasure these films so much and make them work as stories and works of art. But again, I only have about a thousand words in each one to do that. And yeah, it's really hard. So I just had to stay honed in on what I felt the essence of each movie really was in that sense. Yeah. Well, you're a wonderful writer and and a very uh, learned uh, film historian, but even so, a lot of these movies you know, over over the decades have infused themselves in the marrow of movie culture. I mean, they've been written about some of them ad nauseum. So when when you're giving your take on something like Psycho, uh, is that a consideration to to think, okay, what kind of fresh insights can I uh, interject into this ongoing conversation about this movie? Yes, you know, you're absolutely right. Psycho was a title in this film that I won't say filled me with dread and I with a little bit of a pun there, because that's sort of what the movie does to you also while you're watching. But yeah, I mean, that's a movie that has had many, many books 
written about that movie alone. Um, and so, yeah, what else can you really add? Well, I didn't really think it was my job to um, add something brand new, but I thought it was a ch- it was an opportunity to introduce the movie maybe to people who have never seen it, but have always heard about it and really wondered, well, what's the big deal about this horror movie that's now 60 years old? Um, what what is like what is the big deal about it? Why why is it so valued and revered? And with me, it always just comes back to craft and talking mm. about how the movie creates the dread in the audience, um, how it is, uh, what makes it so coherent as a story and a work of art. Um, you know, I this. This book is really it's meant to appeal to people who have never seen any of these movies and are just maybe casual movie fans and have never really delved into old movies, shall we say. Um, But I also wanted it to appeal to people like us who know and love these movies very much already, but maybe just uh, give them a few nuggets to consider it in a in a different light. It's not really the same as giving some new information about it, but sort of a, a, a sum up, a, a reminder of how this movie works so well. Um, you know, Psycho is a movie that we tend to remember as very scary with some really shocking scenes, especially the, the shower scene, of course. It's always the first thing that we think of. But so much of the rest of the movie is designed in such a way to make those shocks and those scenes have the effect that they do. And without that other stuff, the those shocking scenes wouldn't be nearly as effective. And so that's a, that's just an example of one thing that I was thinking about as I wrote that particular essay. You know, I'm not only writing about the shower scene or um, in fact, I don't even mention the scene at the end because I didn't really want to I didn't really want to give away the secret of the plot in any of these essays if I could help it just in case. There are people reading who have not seen it before. In yeah. a couple of movies, it was sort of impossible not to do that, though. Yeah, and and but with Psycho, uh, I mean, the younger generations, they've grown up with the with the endless offspring of Psycho, all the movies that have been inspired by it. So I think uh, even for people that uh, remember the movie very fondly. Um, I think you can miss sight of what actually makes it truly special. I mean, I when you watch a beautiful print of it, uh, the last time I did, I was just taken by just the glorious cinematography, the the rich black and white cinematography, and and what I consider to be one of the great performances in cinema from Anthony Perkins, who makes that character such a unique creation. Oh, you're, uh, absolutely. And in fact, um, you know, the, this book includes excerpts of the introductions that were given on the air by the Essentials hosts when the movie played on the Essentials. And mm-hmm. so Robert Osborne is all through the book because a lot of the films were shown during his era on TCM. And I, I included his quote about Anthony Perkins and how unfortunate it was that he, this, you know, he's always remembered really only for the Psycho movies which is too bad because he was such a great actor period. Mm-hmm. And I just, I let Robert Osborne make that point because he made it so eloquently, but I think it's very true. 
And in terms of your first point, you know, I had the same experience in the first Essentials book when I was writing about Citizen Kane, because there is another movie that to some degree can be difficult to understand what the big deal was about that film only because we've seen all the movies that came after it that were influenced by it yeah. and have just become ingrained as part of film storytelling. And uh, it, you really need to see several films before each of these films in order to get a sense of how shocking and innovative they, they were. Yeah, agreed. Totally. And Citizen Kane is probably the, the poster child for that kind of dynamic. Uh, uh, I want to ask you also, another thing that fascinates me are the the films that were not well received upon their initial release, which later became uh, indisputable classics. And the two that come to mind that you cover in this current book are Vertigo and The Night of the Hunter. What and why do you think audiences at the time missed their value? Well, um, with Vertigo, um, that's a good question. I think it's because it's so dark and it's such a dark shade of Jimmy Stewart. Um, now, that's kind of ironic because throughout his career, he was sort of developing his darker side. I mean, this is nothing new. A lot of people have noted this and written about it over the years. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He's starting to show this obsessive element. And of course, in the in the Anthony Mann Westerns, he really digs deep into that. And Vertigo is sort of the, the ultimate extreme of that progression. Um, but when you look at the other movies that Jimmy Stewart was making around this time, and especially after, right afterwards, you know, it's really an anomaly. And I don't know, maybe audiences just didn't want to see Jimmy Stewart in that way. Um, but the other thing is that it's, in a way, it sort of shows how successful Vertigo is at doing what it does. I mean, that movie starts hypnotizing the audience from the first frame of the title sequence with the spirals and the Bernard Herrmann music. I mean, it really is putting us into a disquieting frame of mind, um, which is totally appropriate for a movie in which, you know, we're aligned with Stewart's character who goes through the same and, you know, he loses his sense of reality and becomes unhinged and it's just very disturbing and it really gets deep into your soul. And I mean, now we, we look at it and we're blown away by, by these aspects of it and we, we love it. I mean, I get lost in vertigo every time as I'm sure you do, but perhaps at the time that had something to do with it. I don't recall exactly what was playing around the time it opened or what other maybe circumstances like that were at play, but that, that might be part of it. And as for the night of the hunter, this is a movie that it always pains me when people to this day maybe see Night of the Hunter and they laugh at it or think it's really ridiculous and silly and simplistic. And because that's what the um, reaction was back then. And I just people didn't quite allow themselves to go with it and experience it on its own terms. I mean, this, that's a film that is very specifically and consciously told through the prism of a child's perspective. And so when you have these, you know, children's songs playing on the soundtrack as the raft is going down the river and we see shots of owls and other kinds of wildlife, you know, if you're not allowing yourself to go with the movie and understand why it's doing that, 
that's a point where I've seen audiences laugh at it. And um, it's frustrating. But I don't know. I think today when people see it and have context, they pretty much uniformly are extremely impressed with that. Film. I think so too. And night of the, I, sh- I actually showed night of the hunter to a good friend of mine. He hadn't seen it before and he chuckled at a couple of places in it. <laughs> Excuse me. But, uh, but then he caught on that, that this is, this is the, the view of a child's nightmare. And, uh, and the movie becomes so, uh, you understand the, the boldness of the movie when you put it in that context and as for Vertigo, it took me a while to, to, to really catch on to Vertigo. And I found that the more I experienced loss in my own life, the deeper that movie's resonance became to me. Yes, um, that actually, I'm glad you said it like that, because um, one of my favorite sort of inadvertent through lines in the book is that very subject. Uh, Laura, the ghost in Mrs. Muir, vertigo and field of dreams now i'm not equating all of those as i don't i wouldn't say field of dreams is a masterpiece like vertigo but what i what i notice is that all four of those films deal with um a love for someone who is presumed dead or some kind of impossible love whether it's romantic or familial Mm. and when you when you see movies like that that delve into that kind of deep longing and and love and the feeling of impossibility and, and those things, it does really strike a chord in audiences because we've all experienced that to some degree in our lives with someone. And these are films that then become transcendent in a way. And they you know as you watch them, you're thinking about your own experience even while you're still wrapped up in the emotions of the of the film you're watching. And I've always felt that movies that are able to accomplish that are the ones that we, I think, treasure the most. Yes. And somehow get at something much deeper uh, than than most films. I agree. The yeah. um, you have such a great uh, cross section of, of of genres from the from the great uh, the great film noirs. You have some some foreign classics here, some international cinema in the Battle of Algiers and Rashomon and you have a documentary that you spotlight, Harlan County, USA, which uh, between that and Gimme Shelter, I, I think those are my two favorite documentaries. Uh, but I, I want to know from you uh, what led you to choose Harlan County. Well, um, first, I just want to point out that at the back of the book, there's an appendix that lists all the movies that have been shown on the essentials on TCM since the program began almost 20 years ago. So the movies that are in both of these, these books come from that list. And I really wanted to make sure that that list was in print this time because the first essentials book I did, I kept getting questions like, well, why is this movie in there? And not, you know, why isn't the Godfather in this? Right. Well, the Godfather's never been shown on the essentials. And so, I mean, this is, this book is as much about that TCM show as it is about the movies themselves in a sense. So um, it's the only documentary that's been shown on the essentials and it was only shown last year. It, uh, it was picked by Ava DuVernay and um, you know, I put together the, the book with people at Turner classic movies, uh, you know, cause it, it, this book represents Turner classic movies as well. And we all agreed that we really wanted Harlan County USA in there because not only is it a great movie, but it just adds to the variety of films in the book. Mm. Um, and um, so 
yeah, I, I think it it's great because it, it's especially satisfying to have it because the Battle of Algiers is also in the book. That's not a documentary, but it's designed to look like one and feel like one. Mm-hmm. And when you compare the two, you can see how uh, the directors made both similar and very different choices in order to achieve their own ends. And it's, it's rather interesting to compare them. Uh, but on its own terms, Harlan County, USA, I mean, it remains so immersive as she really, Barbara Koppel, it's so impressively got into this country and these people and their conflicts and uh, dilemmas and their passions and drives. And um, that this is a movie that becomes transcendent as well, because it really speaks to a lot of a lot of American issues, a lot of things that make us American in a way. And um, her her craftsmanship is just still impeccable. Yeah. And it's so influential. It's so it's it still reverberates in the great documentaries of today. It kind of epitomizes for me uh, what I love about the documentary form. I mean, it isn't a, some dry movie where where interview subjects are reflecting on another time one by one, it, 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 that movie is embedded in the moment. Things are unraveling. Things are happening right in front of the camera. And you really, you feel that immediacy in Harlan County that I just think is so astounding. Um, tell me about yourself. Where did this journey, where did this lifelong love of film begin for you? Well, um, I would say it began with my father, um, who was a, a diplomat, but he just loved, he, he grew up in the 30s and 40s in, in Brooklyn and just, you know, loved the movies of that era. And at a young age, he, his, his favorites were always the Warner Brothers movies of the 40s, I would say. So you know, Casablanca was one of the first movies I ever remember seeing. And uh, we just watched a lot of movies together when I was growing up. And you know, a movie from an older era didn't phase me at all. This is in the really mostly in the in the eighties, I guess. Uh and I went to Wesleyan University, which has a really excellent film program headed by Janine Basinger, um, who was my film professor. I took many classes with her. And her love of uh Hollywood classics is really infectious, but she also is so brilliant at getting into what I already mentioned earlier in this interview, just the nuts and bolts of how movies work as a result of choices to create effects in the audience. And, um, you know, I, um, I, I made some short films at Wesleyan and after I've had various jobs in, in the industry, but, uh, in the last 10 years or so, I've really gravitated towards, towards writing. I've done these books, some other books, I've contributed to others and written articles for different publications and websites done a lot for Turner Classic Movies Online over the last 15 years. And I just never have grown tired of, um, you know, exploring and learning how these classic films that we love so much work. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, a chance to do this kind of book is really exciting because, uh, you know, as you say, a lot of these movies have been written about before, but to really have to be forced to hone down their, their essence um, was actually a really good, good exercise for me and very fulfilling. I wanted to ask you a bit of an oddball question because you've, you've provided um, 
DVD Blu-ray commentaries in the past. I think you did one yeah. for a movie that I particularly love. Did you do Sudden Fear, the Crawford movie? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, I, I love did. that movie. Love that movie. Um, I've always been curious what that process is like. How do you prepare for that? What is what is the the kind of setup when you do it? Well, I I can tell you how I do it. I don't know how other commentators approach it, um, but what I do is um, I uh, go through the movie, and I mean, what I like to do overall is mix analysis, um, where I will actually in real time talk through a scene and explain how certain choices that we can see are resulting in effects that we feel. Um, but you can't do that for hundred percent of the film. And so I fill in other parts of the commentary with, you know, history of the production, how the movie came to be made biographies of actors and crew members without getting too in the weeds on that. Cause that can end up being kind of boring. I find, um, yeah. And so, and then the trick is to mix it all together in, in a seamless way. So I, I do write it out um, and I structure it by first finding the scenes that I know I want to analyze in real time. And they're just punctuated throughout the film. And, and meanwhile, I will write out notes on all the other topics that I just described. And then I'll just kind of figure out where, um, I mean, I time how big the chunks are between the analysis scenes. God, this sounds way more um, sort of academic. <laughs> I think it really is. But uh, then I'll just figure out how long I need for each of the topics. And I'll just sort of fill it. I sort of piece it together like a puzzle and try and find segues between each of the topics to make it feel smooth. And and I do practice doing it once or twice. Um, and But I, you know, the trick is to not make it feel like you're just reading a script. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I'm actually doing it, I'll, I'll improvise a little bit and, and so forth. But um, I do, I need to have my notes in front of me. Otherwise, I'll be saying um a lot, <laughs> which is uh, not something I want to do. But anyway, I, that's how I just want to make it a satisfying, entertaining mix. Because, you know, if I'm listening for an hour and a half, you know, if I'm the audience listening to a commentary, I want to be engaged and... Um, I don't want to hear someone reading a book um, half an hour about one person's life that has nothing to do with the movie in question. So I just try and keep it very focused. Yeah, I think that's important to know because I'm a great lover of commentaries and, you know, I've, I've heard some great ones and I, it it takes a unique skill to, 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 to be engaging as this disembodied voice reading over the film so uh, I wanted to spotlight to people how you do it right. So thank you for describing it. Uh, uh, you're, uh, you mentioned that you have the list of uh, the, the films that play during the Essential series on TCM. Uh, is it easy to imagine writing a third volume of this series for you? I think so, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are enough... Um, I'm not going to say enough good movies because, look, I mean, they're all good movies to some degree, but they're not all. Uh, you could get 52 movies out of the remaining list and it wouldn't really work as a book because, you know, not all of these titles are as uh, famous and, and well-known as others. And you really do need to have a mix, I think. Um, but I do think that there are 52 more in there that could make a volume three. Not sure about a volume four, though. Um 
but yeah, there were several movies that it just killed me not to include in this one. And the same thing happened in the first one, too. Once upon a time, there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty wife, this pretty fly. But one day she flew away, flew away. She had two pretty children, but one night these two pretty children 